Hello, hello, hello. What's going on here then? Just kidding. You all know why you're here. I've got what you need. I understand you. You just need a hit, right? A tiny hint of the drug that you're all craving. Violence. I've got all kinds. Thrillers, action, slashes, giallo, women in prison, science fiction, zombie, Nazis, sex, monsters. Take your pick. This is, of course, the Nasty Pasty, and I'm your dealer, Mr. Roberts, though you can call me Andy. I've been at this a while, looking for the more obscure horror titles to compare to the video Nasties, a set of films peddled like drugs to the lumpen proletariat on British streets, turning them into perverted psychosexual murderers who love to jib hitchhikers into chunks and kidnap children for indoctrinating into their cult. Or at least the government thought. In reality, the films were simply horror films of their time, with just a few examples causing more outrage than others. No one was hurt, but a lot of people suffered, due to the government's crackdown which involved raiding shops, stealing films and then burning them, handing a fine or a prison sentence to the owner or distributor. To highlight the utter incredulity I have about their actions, I look at movies from the same era as the offending nasties, and I compare and contrast them trying to find reasons why certain instances of a theme or an image was unacceptable, while others were ignored. Today's episode is focusing on the topic of unwanted powers. Just as Peter Parker was bitten by a radioactive spider, and most X-Men were the result of natural mutations, supernatural powers are seldom received purposely. Well, unless they're technological and you're Bruce Wayne or Tony Stark. Frequently in fiction, supernatural abilities are imparted without permission. And in these two films today, we have that very plot point. We've got 1987's Enigma from director Lucio Fulci and 1988's Rabid Grannies from Emmanuel Kirvin. Let's assemble like the Avengers and fly to our first film of the week, people. Enigma it is.
At St. Mary's College in Boston, a meek and shy young woman called Kathy is helped by two fellow students, Kim and her boyfriend Tom, to dress for what seems to be a formal evening out. Kathy meets her date, a teacher called Mr. Vernon, who stops the car suddenly and begins to seduce her. Kathy reciprocates his feelings, all the while the two students are listening in nearby with a gaggle of other girls and other students in cars, laughing at what they hear. When they all put their headlights on, Mr. Vernon himself begins to laugh, and Kathy becomes distraught at the cruelty of a prank, running out of the car and becoming chased by the carpool down the road, only to then suddenly be mowed down by another car. She's then hospitalised in a serious coma, and she becomes brain-dead, her consciousness wandering through the hospital and outside. A few nights later, a new arrival to the boarding school is the mysterious Eva, who's shown to Kathy's old dormitory by the headmistress, Miss Jones, where she's introduced to her new roommate, Jennifer. Wasting almost no time, Eva makes clear her sultry intentions at school by subtly seducing Mr Vernon during a physical education class, where he immediately invites her on a date. While he gets ready, he notices the school's cleaner, Mary, who is mute, still cleaning, causing him to dismiss her though she lurks around, bearing strangely red eyes. As he returns to getting ready, his reflection in a mirror suddenly begins to smile and breaks free of the glass, strangling him to death, while Kathy in hospital begins to show signs of intense stress, despite still being brain-dead. Eva, upset at seemingly being stood up, complains to fellow students Virginia, Jennifer, Grace and Kim, and is told about Kathy, revealed to be the cleaner Mary's daughter, only for the group to then cruelly mock her condition. The police visit and rule Mr Vernon's death a heart attack, causing Virginia to get upset and spiteful that Kathy still lives while Mr Vernon has died. She shows disgust for the meal of cooked escargot, and later while returning to her dorm, finds her bed completely wreathed in hundreds of snails, only for them to disappear mere moments later. Later that evening, while Virginia takes a nap, the hundreds of snails reappear and cover her naked body, smothering and choking her to death. Shortly afterwards, Jennifer notices Eva having some kind of convulsion, just before she batters her with multiple articles of clothing, as well as wrecking the room. Jennifer calls for a doctor, bringing Dr Anderson, who is looking after Kathy, to the school to tend to Eva, but he notices nothing about the connection between the two. Over the next few days, Eva begins to seduce Anderson and is successful at doing so, earning the attention of fellow student Grace. During a trip to an art gallery later that day, Grace is apprehensive about the place and gets distracted easily. After leaving, she seems to have lost one of her earrings and returns with Eva to locate it, only for Eva to have the very earring in her own pocket. As the pair search, Eva goes upstairs and dissolves into thin air. When Grace follows her, she encounters a painting that distracted her earlier in the day, suddenly beginning to bleed onto her, throwing out a severed hand. She then hears a voice seemingly coming from the statues nearby, on which elements like a severed head and snakes begin to manifest as real objects, before a large muscular statue literally jumps to life and crushes her to death, though the death is ruled as an accidental one. Anderson becomes more suspicious about Eva, especially after he has a violent nightmare where Eva scratches and devours him after having sex with him. Going to see her at the school, he finds out that Eva has been taken away by her parents and seems relieved, enough that he begins to get close to Jennifer going on dates. In a mental institution, Eva begins to write obsessive notes proclaiming her undying love for Anderson, but is suddenly overtaken by a madness again, escaping and heading back to the school. Mary, however, detects her daughter's spirit and spies Eva, whom she walks towards, both of their eyes glowing red, confirming that Kathy is using Eva's body supernaturally to get her vengeance. Distracted, Eva then spots Kim and her boyfriend Tom and is incensed at their part of the prank. Kim then begins to have visions of Tom being decapitated, which seem to be in every bedroom. Contemplating suicide, Kim sees a vision of Kathy and accidentally slips from the window, dying from the fall. Tom soon wakes up and spies Kim dead on the ground through the same window. The window pane then inexplicably slams down, severing his head which joins his dead girlfriend on the ground outside. Jenny spends an evening with Anderson at the hospital, but feels guilty at being so close to Kathy as she feels intense regret about her part in the joke. 
Deciding to head back to school, she soon reneges on it and returns back to the hospital, but finds the hallways and corridors suddenly confusing and darker, with ghostly sounds and an elevator with a mind of its own. She ends up in the hospital's morgue, where the elevator suddenly vanishes from existence. She's soon confronted by Eva, who threatens her for stealing Anderson from her, attempting to kill her using a scalpel. Suddenly, Anderson bursts in and bears the attack on his arm, cutting it open. Eva attempts to finish the job, but suddenly halts in the middle of it, dropping instantly dead to the floor. In Kathy's ward, all of her machines have been unplugged, and all of her IV drips and medical apparatus removed, revealed to have been done by Mary, willing to stop the killings even if it meant the death of her own daughter. As before, Kathy's consciousness leaves her body and rises further into the sky, finally moving on. How did it go? He wouldn't open the fucking door. But didn't you say he was expecting you? He stood me up, the bastard. Did you say bastard? You must be talking about Fred. Right. <laughs> he was there. I could hear noises inside. Only he wouldn't answer me. Obviously, he didn't want to see you. Did you really expect the most handsome hunk of beefcake in the place was going to fall at your feet as soon as you got here? Not the most handsome hunk. The only hunk. Well, listen to the expert. Does anyone have a light? Not me. Me neither. I don't smoke. And don't we all know it? Here. Catch. Thanks. Hey. How did you know there was a lighter in that drawer? Everybody keeps a lighter in the drawer of their bedside table. I don't. Neither do I. Well, I do. Whose bed is this? Whose bed was it? Kathy, the maid's daughter. Where is she? I haven't met her. She had an accident. <laughs> Fred. Fred got sick of the way she followed him around. So we got together and had a little fun. <laughs> it was a gas. It was a stupid thing to do. Was she really the maid's daughter? Yeah, her mother's crazy Mary. You've seen her. She's retarded. <laughs> it was nothing to laugh about. You didn't have to share a room with her. You should have been grateful. You always had the cleanest room in school. <laughs> Bearing a place in Fulci's late 80s filmography... Enigma is a more subtle brand of the director's usual penchant for gruesome, blood-soaked horror. That doesn't mean necessarily that it's not gruesome or bloody, because it is, but there's a much more prominent attention to mystery, classical elements of horror, and of course, Fulci's fascination with Enigma. It's not too difficult to find where the inspiration for Enigma has come from. Brian De Palma's Carrie gave filmmakers a tried-and-trusted template of why you shouldn't mess with girls under intense stress or social pressure. The girls of St Mary's College, however, sadly skipped that class. And what we have here in terms of story is rather similar, but just structured in a completely different way. Carrie establishes its titular character with an empathetic look at her life and home situation and tells her story with religious iconography and an adolescent fear that comprises her world until a prank incident later in the movie triggers a psychotic and psychokinetic reaction ending with Carrie getting even. Enigma follows a similar premise though places the prank at the beginning of the film before we've actually had a chance to really understand her character and she also wreaks her vengeance in a very different way, having been incapacitated at the beginning of the film, where she then spends the remainder of the film bound to a hospital bed. Taking her cue from Carrie, Kathy is able to mentally project her own consciousness into other people, specifically the young attractive Eva, who's used as Kathy's conduit for bloody retribution. Unlike Carrie, however, Kathy's powers go far beyond merely moving objects with her mind. She's able to manipulate the physical world to make the impossible possible, drawing on her victim's subconscious fears or issues. This idea had pretty much been done in the 1981 cult horror film Galaxy of Terror, but it's also a plot point similar to Stephen King's novel of the year before, the famous It, where the antagonist Pennywise is able to morph into forms depending on his child victim's personal fears. Michael Crichton's Sphere novel, which was released the same year as Enigma, developed this theme a little further, 
having the protagonists inadvertently manifest their fears after coming into contact with a strange spherical object of unknown origin. This idea would become very popular in the future too, condensed into the Boggart creature, for example, in the Harry Potter franchise. Enigma blends this with the Carrie archetype, and then throws in a pinch of Dario Argento for good measure. It's really hard not to draw parallels with Argento's supernatural giallo phenomena from the year previous. Elements of phenomena crop up quite frequently here, like the grouchy headmistress who catches a student smoking, the aura and mystery around the new girl Eva, and Kathy's treatment being similar to Jennifer's ostracization due to her powers. Even the special powers are comparable in both films. The action is set at a boarding school in both instances, and both also have significant set pieces involving bugs. That's not to say that it's completely derivative, though. Enigma has enough strangeness and grisliness to stand on its own feet, but fans of Fulci's usual abundance of gore may not appreciate the more subtle set pieces here. In the short time that we get to see her, Kathy is a rather sympathetic figure, clearly being so shy and unconfident that she enlists the help of fellow students to get ready for a date. They do her makeup, they decide what underwear she'll don, and the dress itself as well. She seems to just want exactly what the other girls of her age have, some attention from the boys, confidence in her appearance, and some popularity in her social group. This is all shattered when the whole date with Mr Vernon turns out to be an elaborate prank and she's utterly humiliated. When this leads to her suffering an accident that puts her in a coma, you do feel that she's entitled to get her revenge on the spoiled brats. But at the same time, you don't feel enough of an emotional connection to actually cheer her on either. Her victims, for the most part, deserve their gruesome ends, especially as most of them harbour an unusually callous viewpoint of Kathy even after her accident. Jennifer's the only exception to this, but again, we don't spend enough time with her to really feel badly that she's tangled up in the whole debacle. In fact, many of the girls are portrayed as rather vacuous and perfunctory, existing merely to be bumped off in supernatural ways. Kim and Tom are clearly meant to be emulating the Nancy Allen and John Travolta roles as chief bullies from Carrie, while Grace is emulating Linda Soles' sidekick, and Jennifer is the stand-in for Amy Irving's remorseful acquaintance. They're nowhere near as well played or developed as the characters from Brian De Palma's Shocker. Eva is the only exception, but she's another victim of Kathy in many ways. One of Eva's most prominent attributes, though, is her sexual behaviour, which is both rather amusing and quite stark as well. While it is funny to hear her philosophies like, a successful year to me means making out with as many gorgeous boys as possible, and her preferences are anything in pants but her purposeful acts of faking a hamstring injury to get a massage from Mr Vernon indicate a much more intelligent and powerful control of her sexuality, especially when we discover her real objective. It's everything, really, that Cathy couldn't be, confident, persuasive, and in control. The fact that through Cathy's control, Eva becomes increasingly more manic and obsessive is testament to what that kind of power can do. Everyone knows that absolute power corrupts absolutely, and this is no more true in terms of physical attractiveness, where someone will use them to get ahead in life, usually resulting them in becoming shallow, superficial, and ultimately alone. Eva plays the ultimate price for being Cathy's doll, dying instantly when Cathy's plan is rumbled by her own mother Mary. It's at this point of the film, though, that you do question whether Eva actually existed in the first place, Not only is her background fuzzy and left unexplained, but you never see her parents actually take her away, and she escapes surprisingly quickly from a mental institution that she's apparently been committed to. If she was real though, of course, it's also fascinating to ponder about which elements of her behaviour were actually genuine, and which were actually just Cathy testing her limits. The only other character really outside of the girls of note is Mr Vernon, the sleazy physical education teacher who's so confident in his sex appeal that he will happily slap the ass of his pupils and pander to their flirtatious attempts in the middle of the class. A responsible, trustworthy adult he is not, but he does give us a scene of teaching exercise to the leotard-clad ladies, which is remarkably similar to the stereotypical 80s scene of having disco music playing and exercising in tandem with the beat. Such a scene exists in Umberto Lenzi's Nightmare City, and even modern audiences remember the Eric Preed's Call On Me music video, which is pretty much that same situation. 
It does little to advance the plot, but these bursts of 80s kitsch are welcome nonetheless. Anderson also falls under Eva slash Kathy's spell at the beginning, but soon becomes wary of her seemingly dangerous subconscious, having a violent nightmare where she reenacts a praying mantis's sex session by murdering him after coitus. He's altogether a rather ineffective character, though, as he doesn't realise the connection between Eva and Kathy at all, and the quick way he moves on to Jennifer when Eva is committed doesn't really win him any brownie points either. But that's another oddity of the film. No one except Mary really finds out the reason for Eva's strange behaviour, and the mystery, for the most part, remains unresolved in many of the characters' minds. Mary, of course, is just as enigmatic as her daughter, having strangely red eyes whenever her daughter's spirit is nearby. The fact that Mary is mute and frequently mocked suggests that she may have also had a traumatic life as her daughter does. The fact that they both have similar traits may be a hint that the family have historically had powers and have had to suppress them because they're so destructive. Kathy, of course, pays the ultimate price, unplugged from her life support by her own mother, seemingly out of love that is appalled by how murderous her daughter has become. Perhaps even Mary did something similar as a child and became mute as a result. The fact that not much is explained really does lend credence to the film's title of Enigma. A lot of the plot and characterization is merely hinted at, with only bursts of violence and supernatural happenings to illuminate this cinematic darkness. I can honestly dig this, though, as some of the sequences are frequently bizarre. As Mr. Vernon is a chauvinist pig, and completely in love with his own attractiveness, he gets a lesson in Greek mythology, when his reflection causes his death when it becomes sentient and leaps from a mirror to strangle him. Narcissus, in the myth, fell in love with his own reflection, and depending on the version of the story that you're told, he melted away from frustration that his reflection could never reciprocate, or out of despair, he beat and attacked himself and ultimately committed suicide. Mr. Vernon's reflection takes a more direct approach, but it's interesting nonetheless. Virginia is freaked out by the idea of eating snails as they make her skin crawl, so it's only natural that she die via snails. This is one of the more memorable scenes simply for how grim and uncomfortable it looks. I mean, they're full-on supernatural snails too, as Virginia is paralysed by fear and is unable to stop them from smothering her to death. I'm a bit averse to slugs and snails, though, actually mainly after watching Slugs last year, so this scene for me was a little bit queasy. Grace is crushed by a statue made animate by Eva's magic in one of the more hokey scenes, if I'm honest, But we do get some great sequences of pieces of art becoming real as they fling blood and body parts at the unsuspecting girl. For Kim, I suppose her biggest worry would clearly be to be without her boyfriend, her partner in crime in almost every way. So, true to her inner fears, she continually sees her boyfriend decapitated in every bed that she finds. Her death is also unique in that Kathy's spirit actually appears to finish her off presumably because Kim was the chief bully of her, being both her roommate and the one who dressed her up for the prank. Tom, too, actually loses his head in a deadly fashion, though his severed head drops and becomes cradled by the dead Kim, potentially fulfilling like a fear of being stuck with the spiteful Kim for all eternity. For Jennifer, whose slight is apparently more personal, causes Eva to directly confront her with a scalpel, I saw this as kind of like a way of correcting Jennifer's beauty in a medical fashion, like kind of plastic surgery gone wrong, for the crime of stealing Anderson away from her. There's enough hinted at to suggest that Kathy likes teaching everyone relevant lessons, but there's enough left in the dark to keep it, well, an enigma. In conclusion, the film is a rather good late Fulci entry. It has enough of the maestro's elements for ardent fans, and even casual horror fans, but those that prefer his gorier output probably shouldn't expect to be appalled by excess claret in this subtle but effective shocker. The beautiful and deadly Eva was played by actress Lara Lamberti, who'd been in Lamberto Barva's Jallo, A Blade in the Dark, as well as a minor appearance in the Arnold Schwarzenegger film Red Sonja. Jared Martin, who played Dr. Anderson, had previously been in Fulci's post-apocalyptic action film, Warriors of the Year 2072, before going on to all sorts of American TV shows like Murder, She Wrote, War of the Worlds, and Dallas. Jennifer was played by actress Uli Lorenthaler, whom we've seen before in Zombie Flesh Eaters 2, which was her only other role. 
The honky Mr. Vernon was played by Ricardo Acerbi, who'd also popped up in Joe D'Amato's Frankenstein 2000. While Serbian actor Dragan Zelogalek played Tom, he went on to star in a lot of Serbian movies, as well as venturing into producing, writing and directing. Not many of the other actors appeared in anything else, however, so it's quite a small chunk about the actors this time. In the crew, of course, though, is the renowned Lucio Fulci, whom we've covered many times before. Fulci, of course, had his own cameo, as he always does, appearing as the coroner investigating Mr Vernon's death. Though, at this stage, it was very clear that Fulci was becoming unwell. He's noticeably thinner and a lot more gaunt, so it's all the more impressive, really, that he was able to appear on screen, do the photographic special effects, and even write the film. He was assisted in the writing department, though, by Giorgio Mariuzzo, who was the assistant director of Five Women for the Killer and the writer on lots of Fulci's filmography, like Contraband, The Beyond, and House by the Cemetery. One of the producers on the film, Boro Banyak, worked on 1990's Deadly Chase and Bridge to Hell, while another, Walter Brandy, was actually a production manager on stuff like Zombie Creeping Flesh, Rat's Night of Terror, and Women's Prison Massacre. And he also had some acting parts in films like Bloody Pit of Horror and Bruno Mattai's SS Girls. The music, including that incredibly catchy opening ballad, was from Carlo Maria Cordio, who'd done the music for Joe D'Amato's Video Nasty offerings, Anthropophagus and Absurd. We've actually encountered him before on Nasty Pasty as well, on stuff like Killing Birds and Shocking Dark. Cinematography was done by the same guy as Shocking Dark, Luigi Cicciaresi, who pretty much did all of Bruno Mattei's later work, like In the Land of the Cannibals and Cannibal Holocaust 2, Mondo Cannibal. The editing was done by Vanio Amici, who worked on Troll 2 and Black Demons, and finally, the special makeup effects were done by Nasty Pasty regular Giuseppe Ferranti who worked on Hands of Steel, Rat's Night of Terror, Hotel Paradise, Don't Open Till Christmas, and The House of Lost Souls. The film came out in 1987 with a much more muted response than most of Fulci's filmography. Of course, in Italy, Fulci's work was rarely regarded positively, but even Fulci fans commonly note that around this period, his films began to dip a little in quality. Because this was so late on in his career, it meant that Enigma had missed the Video Nasty scandal, so it was impossible for the police to have complained about it. It was instead released on VHS in the UK in 1988 from video programme distributors, where it was released without cuts at Certificate 18. By now, of course, 88 Films have restored the film after successfully crowdfunding four restorations in one project – It's therefore now available on both DVD and Blu-ray, and because of how much time has actually passed, the film has now been reduced to a 15 certificate. So, that was our first film, Enigma. Let's transfer our attention to the next entry in today's nasty pasty extravaganza, Rabid Grannies. At a church, Father Percival asks his superior for a weekend's leave, explaining that he needs to attend the birthday party of his aunts, Elizabeth and Victoria Remington, who were dropped off in town to do some shopping for their weekend celebrations. Miss Barnstable, the family's cook, and maid Alice begin plucking feathers from the pheasants in the kitchen and discuss the upcoming party, which all the extended family are invited to. Alice says that there's word in the village that the family are simply waiting to inherit the Remington sisters' fortunes, which Mr Barnstable agrees with, suggesting that the family are corrupt underneath their posh exterior. The whole party begins to assemble, such as the portly Fred, who rants at his second wife Jessica about his troubles, whilst another family, including Helen, John and their kids Susie and Gilbert, argue about cookies before carrying on in the car. 
A tank salesman, Harvey, leaves his business for the weekend, while the disturbed Bertha cycles to their house, knocked over by the youthful and arrogant Roger. A lesbian couple, Erica and Rachel, also head there, whilst the ladies' butler, Radu, is briefed about the guest's arrival. Roger soon insinuates to Rachel that if he got the inheritance, he'd buy her from Erica. Though she slaps him in the face, he manages to seduce her anyways and the pair sleep together. At the dinner table, now that everyone has arrived, the atmosphere is rather tense, with everyone being rather disdainful of each other. As the meal is served, a strange woman arrives at the gates and is greeted by Alice, who is handed a small present to give to the old ladies on behalf of a nephew who isn't invited, called Christopher. Roger talks to Rachel about the man, who'd reportedly joined a cult which practised a black mass in a nearby graveyard. The aunts open their presents received from the family, and finally, the one from Christopher, a strange box covered in obscure markings, which they accept graciously. As Jessica sings them a song, the box emanates a smoke which enters their wine glasses, and as the family makes a toast, Elizabeth and Victoria drink the spoiled alcohol. As the family await the arrival of a knife to cut their birthday cake, the aunts begin to look ill and undergo a transformation, such as Victoria, who gains razor-sharp claws, which she uses then to suddenly shred the birthday cake in half, shocking all the guests at the table. As they reel back from this, Elizabeth shoots her clawed hand far across the table and grabs Erica by the hair, dragging her towards her face, which mutates quickly into a wide-fanged maw. She then chomps on Erica's head, completely tearing it off, and eating it before she burps and giggles demonically. As Alice enters to bring the knife, she is picked up by the demonic Victoria and flung headfirst into a mirror, shattering it and killing her when the shards embed in her face. The panicked guests flee into multiple directions and barricade themselves into rooms, unlike Miss Barnstable and Radu who are confronted in the kitchen by the demon Victoria. Helen, John, Rachel, Percival and Gilbert are hidden in one room, whilst Fred, Harvey and Bertha hide in another. Jessica and Roger wander the hallway outside and find themselves at a dead end when they see a large painting. Suddenly, the possessed Elizabeth bursts through, forcing Jessica to sever her hands with a sword. They grow back instantly, but it allows them to make a break for the car outside. It's all for naught, however, when Elizabeth catches onto the car as it drives off, gaining access to the back seat and twisting Roger's head backwards, killing him. She then taunts the frightened Jessica by offering to spare her if she sings happy birthday to her. She struggles but manages to finish the song and is surprised when Elizabeth actually allows her to leave. She changes her mind though as Jessica gets down the road and possesses the car to drive full speed at her, crushing her into a gate. Back in Rachel's room, Helen suddenly realises that Susie went to the toilet shortly before the aunt's transformation and won't know about what's happened. Sure enough, Susie wanders the empty halls and hears the voice of Aunt Elizabeth going into a nursery. Susie finds Elizabeth on a rocking chair, looking as normal again, spouting that she and Victoria are playing hide-and-seek. Helen eventually gets frustrated with Percival and John's lack of action and goes out to look for Susie with Rachel and Gilbert. Hearing a noise from upstairs, Helen is distraught when a child's leg is thrown down the stairs. Running up the flight, she's horrified to see Susie's corpse missing its legs, being cradled by the demon Elizabeth, while Victoria swings on the chandelier above them. Returning to Rachel, Helen grabs Gilbert and embraces him out of grief, only to then spot the real Gilbert on the other side of the room in a doorway. Realising the child in her arms is an imposter, she's unable to stop the doppelganger from biting her fingers off before they all flee into the next room, the chapel, and barricade themselves in. The two aunts taught Rachel about her lesbianism and feign that they have John outside, torturing Gilbert with the sound of his father dying. Helen has now become mad and doesn't help when demon Victoria tries to burst in, though she is repelled when Rachel stabs her in the eye. John, now consumed by his cowardice, decides to look for his wife and ends up in Fred's room. All four, including John, Harvey, Fred and Bertha, decide to look around the house for people. Fred and Harvey go into the basement, while Bertha and John inspect the kitchens. Bertha stumbles across the corpse of Miss Barnstable, with her face completely cocked off, while a still-alive Radu is injured on the floor. In the basement, Fred and Harvey discover a grate which might lead outside. 
Despite saying that Fred is too large to get through, Fred goes ahead anyway and gets himself stuck in the crevice, and Harvey attempts in vain to get him out. When the demons get close, Harvey is forced to abandon him, and the possessed biddies slice open Fred's seat of his pants and literally devour his arse, ripping it open and tearing the entirety of his rear end out. Harvey vomits at the sight of it and is spotted by the creatures, running away and obtaining a shotgun from a chest. Elizabeth advances towards him and he shoots out her stomach, only for it to be completely ineffective. He instead knocks her down the stairs, only to then encounter Victoria in a suit of armour, who hacks off his legs and arms with a sword before impaling him in the groin with a lance and throwing him down the stairs. The growing despair causes Radu to walk towards Window, whereby Victoria throws a piece of her own entrails, causing him to slip into a window and die from the glass impaling his face, allowing Bertha and John to run away. Percival then leaves the room to look for others and is immediately caught by the sisters, who give him a choice of suicide, condemning him to hell for such a sin, or being a devout Christian and allowing them to kill him in a brutal fashion. As each choice becomes more and more intense in their vouching, Percival gives in and shoots himself in the head with a machine pistol. Bertha and John find the box that was gifted to the aunts and have the idea of destroying it on consecrated ground. As the sisters hear their plan, John implores Bertha to run with the box to the chapel while he distracts the possessed biddies. He's no match for them, however, and they promptly snap his back in two. Bertha reaches the chapel and begs Rachel and the others to let her in, which they do. Grabbing a crucifix, Bertha continually batters the box and smashes it into pieces, causing both Elizabeth and Victoria to convulse and transform back into their old selves. The next morning, the police take reports from the old women, who were understandably shaken, while Helen is taken away having suffered a complete breakdown. Rachel, however, promises to look after Gilbert until his mum is better, while Bertha takes a cab away from the property. As the driver nears a city, Bertha is seen uncontrollably vomiting a green liquid before attacking the driver and severing his hand, ending the movie. Mrs Barnstable? What now, girl? Is it true what they say in the village? What do they say in the village? Well... That the family is only after our mistress's money. And who said that? Well, the owner of the pub. He heard it from Father Henry. That's rich, that is. We can thank that old goat, Father Henry, again. He's crazy and... mad. Keep plucking, girl. At least in this mansion, we're down to earth. At least in my kitchen. Just look at the time. Still have. Prepare the salmon souffles, steam the lobsters, stuff the pheasants and set the table. So keep your questions until later, please. All right, girl. I suppose we can talk and work at the same time. The whole bloody family is after the money. The darling old girls are blind as a bat. And worst of all, there's not one worth it. Do you hear me, Alice? Not one. All of them. Parasites. Hypocrites. Be very careful of those people, Alice. They look good, sound good, and they're respected everywhere. But that family is like a stillborn calf. Soft and smooth on the surface, but underneath... Nothing but maggot-infested, rotting flesh! It's not often that I'm in utter shock once a movie ends, but in a strange twist of fate, in this case, it's all for the right reasons. A Belgian production financed with both British and French funding, Rabid Grannies is a hilarious exercise in bad taste, with chunks of ridiculous dialogue, heaps of black comedy, and peppered with over-the-top gore sequences and disturbing elements that provoke lots of what-the-fuck moments. What initially seems like an overly sweet tale of two old ladies having to contend with the ungrateful vultures that comprise their family for a weekend quickly descends into an Evil Dead-style gore-fest that shocks with both its laughter-inducing set-pieces and frequently uneasy situations. 
What's great about Rabid Grannies is that it utilises the plot and its cast of characters extremely well. The plot may be relatively simple, but it gives us such a wide range of characters to become acquainted with to enjoy their rampant eccentricity. Well, the attitudes and motivations of most of the cast would normally cause you to wish their speedy demise, each character in this film is so bizarrely portrayed and so campy to watch that it's actually a real shame when they have to snuff it. Thankfully, the filmmakers make sure to wring as much enjoyment from their deaths as much as their living moments, with some truly graphic moments that stick in the memory for long after. As said before, the plot is quite simple, but it's also rather fairy tale and romanticised too in the particulars. Two great dotty matriarchs are having their birthday bash by inviting their extended family over, and in true Shakespearean style, they all have an axe to grind and motives of their own, which don't include familial harmony. It's the old tried and trusted, everyone's being a sycophant, so that nice old auntie will leave me their fortune game. So, every one of the characters is seemingly locked in battle with each other for their aunt's affections. It then becomes ever more gothic and grim brothers when a mysterious woman in black drops off a gift with the maid on behalf of an unseen ostracised devil-worshipping family member called Christopher. The little magic box contains an apparently malevolent spirit which infects the old ladies and turns them into cannibalistic clawed demons who run rampage through their house dispensing bloody mayhem on their deserving family members as well as satiating their hunger at the same time. This carries on for most of the film, causing our characters to figure out who they really are, before someone has the idea of destroying the box, which ends the curse. Or does it? It's quite a simple plot, as they all seem to have been quite lately, but I'm certainly not complaining in this instance. With this rainbow of characters, it's hard not to feel quite warm and fuzzy about this movie. The first one we're introduced to is Father Percival, who's awkward and weird from the very start. But at least he has no scruples in asking his aunts for money directly, because his school funding is lacking, and he kind of uses the think-of-the-children argument with considerable skill. This is, of course, ironic, as he seems to actually detest children, threatening Gilbert with a fork when the little scamp keeps pulling on his robe. Percival is also characteristically weak and spineless, refusing to let Helen search for her child, even though she's alone in reach of the demon aunts, as it compromises his safety. He even agrees with Harvey's business of dealing with the war economy, simply because he explains that his targets are merely communists. And he's also most reluctant for the aunts to reconsider their feelings about the maligned Christopher. I mean, the irony of the guests hating the apparently satanic Christopher, claiming that he only deserves condemnation for his warped morals, even though all of them are simply hanging around for their relatives' money. He gets quite a memorable death as the aunts toy with him in a very disturbing manner, forcing him to choose between his religion and his corporeal body. On one hand, they give him a choice to commit suicide, avoiding a slow and excruciating death from the monsters, but committing a huge sin and sending him to hell. Or he can remain devout to his faith and suffer an unspeakable death from his aunts who promise to devour his guts, rip his organs out and make it as long and arduous as possible. Left with such a desperate situation, Percival gives in to his feelings at the time and chooses to shoot himself in the head, causing the ladies to erupt in mocking laughter. Now, I'm of course not a religious person at all, but I do find that element of forcing him to gamble with his devout beliefs quite a disturbing thing for a believer to experience. But then again, it may also be a reflection on Percival as a priest, that he actually had no true faith in his work and merely used it to shield himself from the world. Helen is relatively headstrong, though she's just as greedy for the inheritance as the rest of her family. She goes out to search for her daughter in the most dangerous situation and is unfortunately immediately broken at the sight of her dead and partially devoured daughter. She then becomes kind of catatonic for the rest of the film, being institutionalised in the film's ending, as she simply couldn't cope with the loss of Susie. Her husband John is much more of an irritant, being rather unconcerned at first and then stabbing accusations at everyone else when the pressure gets too high, like blaming Rachel's lesbianism for his fear and blaming Helen for letting Susie go to the toilet. The latter example just shows how ineffectual he is. 
he actually expected his wife to anticipate her aunt mutating into murderous beasts with enough time to discourage her daughter from going to the toilet. Even Helen herself is aghast at this request. He does redeem himself in the end, though, somewhat, sacrificing himself to allow Bertha to escape, even though he's fully aware that he's unlikely to survive the encounter. Other notable characters include the very large, portly Fred, who speaks with a very thick Yorkshire accent. He's on his second wife, he's generally slobbish, and is particularly irritated at the keeping up appearances portion of trying to inherit the fortune. His reaction to the crisis at hand is at first to proclaim that they don't actually exist, and that they all must be hallucinating. He's then proved wrong when they attack him, at which point his default action is to drink heavily. At this point, he's dangerously close to being a man after my own heart, but he then meets a memorable demise when he gets himself stuck in a small chute in the basement due to his size. Though Harvey is around, he's unable to aid Fred as the demon ants literally rip the seat of his pants open and, well, completely devour and tear his arse open, from what I can see. I mean, this scene goes on for quite some time, and it does feel quite excruciating to watch because of the dwelling upon the flesh tearing. Harvey is unable to stomach what he's seeing as well and promptly vomits, which adds another nasty layer to proceedings. Harvey himself is in the warfare business, selling various versions of tanks for combat, and though Helen stirs about how immoral the whole business is, Harvey slimily recovers favour with his aunts by suggesting that it's okay because his customers only target the commies. I'm pretty sure it's still the same thing, but the dotty matriarchs accept this hook, line and sink anyway. Out of the whole lot, however, I think that Harvey has the most side-splitting death sequence that I've seen for a long time. It's almost Monty Python in execution, having the demonic Victoria, clad in knight's armour, use a broadsword to slice each of his arms and legs off before stabbing him in the groin with a lance, turning him literally into a popsicle before tossing the disembodied trunk down the stairs. It's both gory and frigging hilarious to boot. This scene alone should endear anyone to the wonder that is rabid grannies. Fred's wife, Jessica, is only featured for a short amount of time and speaks in a very pronounced Queen's English, hinting at quite noble beginnings. But it's rather telling, however, that she becomes completely Irish when she's utterly pissed, which sort of fits in with the theme of everyone putting on a facade about their true intentions. Like any true Irish person, she's displeased when her wine bottle is taken from her, and she can belt out a wonderful tune even in the midst of intoxication. Her death scene is rather like Percival's, though, having both sinister and strangely funny charms. Elizabeth corners her and forces her to sing Happy Birthday for her freedom, which is actually quite horrible to watch as she struggles to sing it, trying really hard to contain her crying from fear. Amazingly, though, Elizabeth actually lets her go, which I didn't expect. Although, of course, she does go back on her promise and rams Jessica to death with a car. Speaking of the Irish, however, the cold-hearted Erica is dubbed by someone who sounds perpetually drunk. Every agonising syllable is drawn out to a drunken slur, and it's a little hard to listen to, really. And she should have sued the charm school as well, because she's both selfish, hypocritical, and generally ill-tempered. Thankfully, though, she's the first victim to go, being grabbed across the table by the transforming Elizabeth and literally has her head devoured in front of everybody. This scene, too, really kickstarts proceedings rather well, letting you know right away that you're getting buckets of humour along with the offal and the sinew flying about the place. Roger is not particularly well-developed other than being portrayed as an arrogant, spoilt rich kid with a predatory viewpoint of Rachel's lesbianism simply musing that she's just frustrated and that deep down she wants a man. Oddly enough though, this approach actually works and Rachel ends up sleeping with him. While this isn't really a triumph for respecting a person's sexuality, it also does little to endear us to Roger at all, who gets a rather flimsy death sequence too where his head is just twisted around, breaking his neck. Rachel is one of the few headstrong people to keep repeatedly doing the right thing, except for her minor infraction of betraying her supposed lesbianism. But then again, she may have been bisexual. It's probably more reflective of Roger's toxic masculinity that she ended up sleeping with him when he was so persistent. She helps barricade her group into a room and accompanies Helen on a dangerous trek outside to search for Susie, taking over the role as protector when Helen goes literally insane. 
Her humility even extends to opening the door when the sisters are clearly mimicking John's pained screams, just on the off chance that she may actually be saving his life. Even when Bertha desperately needs to gain access, Rachel takes that chance once more, even though she's aware that it could risk their lives. I mean, she's pretty great, really. As is Bertha, especially as she's the recipient of the family's mirth due to her dottiness and perceived status as a virgin. Despite being a little mad and eccentric, she's the ultimate heroine of the story as she comes up with the plan to destroy the box, and it does work. Though she does suffer in the end as the curse simply transfers to her. The kids in the film don't really add too much to proceedings other than a few select scenes. The first of which is rather inexplicable, really, by the time the film ends. Helen hugs Gilbert and realises that she's hugging a demonic doppelganger which bites her fingers off. It's completely out of the blue, and the doppelganger is never seen again, so you'd end up wondering just where it came from. The aunts don't seem to do this again, so you wonder actually then whether it was them in the first place. But if not, how exactly did the power of the box do this? In another moment, Gilbert throws holy water on the aunts to repel them, only to get a brilliant retort from the demons that holy water won't work on them. So Rachel then improvises by stabbing her in the eye with a crucifix, lending quite a brutal edge to the self-aware joke. In Susie's example, the film crosses another Hollywood line by having a child killed. In this instance, her legs haven't been torn off and eaten. It is rather graphic, though thankfully it's not shown in real time. Rather, it's depicted as an aftermath kind of shot. It's still quite disturbing, though, of course, especially as we witness Elizabeth lure her grandniece to her death by appearing as her normal self. Then we have the staff members, Radu, Alice and Miss Barnstable. Radu is rather bland when it comes to his character, though he does look rather like Manuel from Faulty Towers, except that he has a good grasp of the English language. He's frequently irritated by both his employers and the guests he's forced to serve, and he gets a rather humorous death where Elizabeth throws a piece of her intestines in his path, causing him to crash into a pane of glass. Miss Barnstable looks like a cross between Clarissa Dixon Wright and Miss Trunchbull, and has a suitably cantankerous dubbing job to boot. She at least is aware of the hypocrisy of the family, stating to Alice that that family is like a stillborn calf, soft and smooth on the surface, but underneath, nothing but maggot-infested, rotting flesh. She's a bit tyrannical, brutish, but she's incredibly entertaining to watch, especially as she dismisses the demonic form of Victoria as nothing more than Our Lady Has Terrible Indigestion. When she suffers for her unusual calm, as the crew later find her body with her face completely burnt off with a cooker. Alice, too, is also quite memorable for her hapless behaviour, seemingly doing everything possible to irritate her superior Miss Barnstable, with a face like a smacked ass and a simple, I'm doing my best, Mom, for everything. She also gets it rather quickly when Victoria throws her head first into a mirror, killing her instantly. As you can see, the characters make up the entire charm of the film. The dubbing is predominantly British, but... The accents and dialogue are quite muddled and disjointed to say the least, but as a result it's nigh impossible to take this film seriously, and combined with the rudimentary story, it does allow us to really get to grips with the colourful cast of characters and enjoy them for all their madness, eccentricity and blackly comic death scenes. It's hard not to like a film like this, and though there's no actual rabies or grannies for that matter, the film ought to be seen much more often. It's a thrill ride in almost every way, with a black comedy that Sam Raimi would approve of, dodgy dubbing that makes the room look professional, and a passion that even the makers of Burial Ground would envy. Really, go out and seek this immediately if you haven't seen it already. The portly and vapid Fred was played by Guy Van Riet, who was in the 1990 film Nikita and 1994's The Affair. Catherine Amory, who played Helen, ended up playing in lots of French movies, as well as 2015's Very Private Life of Mr. Sim and 2016's Vincent. Robert Dubois, who played the ridiculous Father Percival, was also the assistant director on Rabid Grannies, while Paula Herriman, who played the battle-axe Miss Barnstable, was actually the commentator for Belgium during the Eurovision Song Contest from 1959 up until her final appearance in 1979. Finally, there was the actress who played Alice, Patricia Davy, who was another assistant director to the production. But that's pretty much it, really. 
Almost all of the actors were French, and this would be their only role in most cases, whilst others went to work exclusively in French TV. The director was Emmanuel Curvin, who had a very short filmography, only appearing as an actor in Kickboxer 2, replacing Jean-Claude Van Damme's role as Kurt in a very small cameo. Producer Jean-Bruno Castellane also worked as the composer on the film, as well as the same roles on later films Maniac Nurses and State of Mind. Other producer Jonathan Rambert uh, popped up in the film as one of the police officers in the film's conclusion, while Johan van der Voistein was no stranger to exploitation films, as he helmed the sickening Lucca the Necrophagus, which we'll be covering later this year. The editor was Philippe Ravway on his debut in the film industry, who's since gone on to multiple big-budget Belgian movies. The special effects crew on the film totaled four people, but all of them worked on this film only. Except for one, Sebastian Fernandez, who started his career in Rabid Grannies, but has gone on to do the visual effects for absolutely huge blockbusters, like Prometheus, Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets, Blade Runner 2049, Thor Ragnarok, Jumanji Welcome to the Jungle, The Greatest Showman, Sicario 2, Soldado, and most recently, Mowgli, Legend of the Jungle. Presumably due to the subject matter and the high gore level, Rabid Grannies was instantly consigned to the direct-to-video crowd, as it received no cinematic release either in its native Belgium nor most of Europe. It was picked up, though, by the infamous Troma Company in the US, where it was heavily promoted as one of their signature silly products. Unfortunately, they also heavily butchered the film's print, removing most of the extreme gore and leaving it in a choppy and noticeably censored form. Despite this, it was apparently still successful among cult collectors, and it actually got the approval of the original director Emmanuel Curvin, who stated that he's preferred that cut. It's had two VHS releases in the UK, but due to the film's release in the late 80s, it was another of those which was skipped by the police as the whole debacle had pretty much died off by then. The first release was from Virgin Visions in 1990, while a subsequent release from Troma themselves was released in 1996. But unfortunately, both versions were the heavily cut US print, which to me removed almost everything good about the film. This is the only version that the UK has had since, meaning that we're missing the so-called producer's cut, which has all that gore intact. I'm not sure if the scene of the child being killed with its legs cut off would be an issue, but I doubt it really today, considering the satirical and nonsensical nature of the movie. Well, that's it for today, folks. It does mean I have to love you and leave you for another week yet again. But thanks as usual to our regular listeners, or new listeners if this is only the first of a couple that you've heard. Now I'll be back next week as usual with another pair of horrors to whet your seedy little appetites. Next week's theme is Classics with a Twist, covering very familiar looking monsters that we've come to know and love from the Universal Monsters franchise, for example, though in a drastically altered and contemporary depiction. We'll be covering Philip Morris, The Beast Within, and Paul Morrissey's Blood for Dracula. But until then, try to relax, comfortable in the knowledge that this annoying know-it-all will be back assaulting your cochlea again soon. Farewell! Farewell!